You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how do you tax the rich? In his first speech to Congress last month, President Biden laid out how he wants to change America's fortunes in the social sense and the economic balance of power. His plan would see up to $4 trillion spent on investments in jobs and education. And there's no mistaking who President Biden thinks should pick up the bill. But it's time for corporate America and the wealthiest 1% of Americans to just begin to pay their fair share. Just their fair share. Some Republicans are decrying the plan as dangerous socialist dreams. Investors worry that economic growth bouncing America back out of the pandemic could be crushed by hiking corporate taxes. My guest this week has views on all this and much more besides, and he's very definitely part of America's 1%. Ray Dalio is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, and over 40 years, he's built that into one of the largest hedge funds in the world. It's made him a billionaire. A lot of folk on Wall Street and far beyond look to Dalio for his unique investment philosophy about how to create a distinctive and driven company culture. He's put it all down in a book called Principles, and it's a New York Times bestseller. But the business he represents, hedge funds, is often in the eye of the storm, and some critics don't think they should exist at all. So let's get into that and more. Ray Dalio, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, it's so good to be with you. You've taken a step back from running one of the largest hedge funds in the world. You gave up your CEO title a couple of years ago, but you're still very involved in the running of it. What is it about the hedge fund world that's still so attractive to you? Well, uh, just to be clear, I'm, I'm a chairman and I'm a chief investment officer, but I don't run the business day to day. And I I really love it. And I just love the game. You know, it's macroeconomics uh, and you get to uh, bet on it. So I get to study all the markets. We're trading all the liquid markets in the world, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, and so on. And and it requires me to know about those things. And I've been doing this for about 50 years and I'm, I'm excited to keep doing it. Hedge funds always feel to me like, well, that it's often asked to defend itself. Is that fair? Well, I think there's probably a broad move to um, attack people maybe in the markets or people who earn a lot of money and so on. But I think sometimes people don't know much about it and they think it's doing evil things like, I don't know, taking advantage of people and all of that. And they don't realize that most of our clients, for example, are pension funds, endowments, and those types of clients. So I think it's probably misunderstood. Let's talk about Bridgewater now. You set it up, I think, in your apartment in the mid-70s in New York and, and built it up from there. That's proof that you can uh, start anything working from home, I suppose. It's useful to know right now. To put you on the spot, how much is it worth today? We manage about $150 billion. Who knows what it's worth? Who knows what it's worth? You can't put a figure on that. No, you, you know, that's, it's, a, you know, it's an illiquid investment and so on. I couldn't tell you what it's worth. Would you be able to guesstimate the personal wealth that you've been able to, to accrue from it? Um, that's personal and I won't talk about it. You don't talk about it, but you've done, yeah, you've done very well out of it. I've been blessed to have done very well, yes. You had a bit of friendly competition, I think, with George Soros in the past. One year you'd overtake him as the most successful manager, the next he would you and so on. 
I, I don't think it's a competition. You know, I don't view it as competition. I just view it like doing the best you can and, and doing well. You know, uh, we've also made more money for our clients than any other hedge fund. So, uh, you know, we're the largest and we have made more money for our clients than any other. And we get a share of the profits and uh, that's been financially enormously rewarding. Yes, it's been great in that regard. 2020 was one of the worst years for Bridgewater. It lost over $12 billion in a year when competitors reaped some of their best returns. I think you've said you didn't see the loss coming. So on reflection, what mistake do you think was made and was it connected particularly to the pandemic? Yeah, we missed the pandemic. We we we, uh, we lost the money in really the second quarter when the, the pandemic hit. And we've made more, all that money back and, and, and some more. You can't be in the game and make excellent returns and make money all the time. And so, yeah, the pandemic was the thing that got us then. I'm very curious about the internal culture at Bridgewater. I've read that new hires get copies of your principles as required reading, and that includes ideas about radical truth and transparency as key pillars of what you do. Tell us a bit about that internal culture and why is it so important to you? I think every every organization has to have a culture and that culture has got to be clear. And so what I did when I was operating from the beginning practically is that every time I would make a decision, I would write down my criteria for making that decision. That would be, those would be called the principles. And, I, and because I want the people to be partners in this business, what I would do is I'd show them everything and I would explain why would I make those decisions. And so our culture said in one sentence, is an idea meritocracy in which the goals are meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And we get there through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. So what I mean is by an idea meritocracy is that I want the best ideas to win out and we'll thrash it out and we'll get to how they will win out. And what I mean by meaningful work and meaningful relationships is to be on a mission with the people that you're working with, to be, you know, as great as you can be, to produce excellence and to simultaneously have those relationships in which there's a lot of caring for each other, but it's also a lot of tough love. And then to do it by being radically truthful and transparent. Because first of all, if you're not truthful, if you can't be straightforward with each other and really truthful about what you're thinking, you don't know what the other person's thinking. The office can become very political and it's all stuck in people's heads where if you can become radically truthful with each other and talk about the difficult things, is somebody doing well or not doing well? Or what do you really think? that that's very effective and it also builds trust over a period of time. And then to be transparent means that people can see what's really going on. And so by uh, that way, you don't get spin. And so that culture, more than anything, has been the reason for our success. Because in the business, basically, in this business, it's, it's tough to be right. You know, everybody's got an opinion in the markets. And so you have to have independent thinking and you've got to work it through that way and get the best ideas from wherever they come. You say culture, but is it also a bit cultish? Employees giving each other feedback a lot of times a week. Okay, you can see that that, that could be very welcome, could be very testing, but welcome. You generate a kind of baseball cards scheme, I think, that shows how much views can be trusted. That, does, that sounds a little bit 
Is cult an unfair word? Our culture is the opposite of a cult. It is based on disagreement. In other words, it's based on independent ideas. It depends what you mean by a culture. Yes, we have a culture in which people can, anybody from the, the newest graduate out of college can think that I'm doing something wrong and they can bring it up and I'm required or the CEO is required to discuss that with them in front of everybody if that's required. That kind of ability to disagree well and so on is a culture. But I think of a cult as being singularly following some one point of view and the doctrine of somebody without thinking of themselves. So I would say ours is an anti-cult culture. Let's dig a bit deeper into one of the defining stories of the year on Wall Street, and that was GameStop. What did you make of that phenomenon and the evidence vitriol against hedge funds that lay behind it? Was there anything that you learned from that experience? I I loved it because it was just like me when I was starting out, you know, young, enthusiastic, people playing the markets. And of course, I think that they view the hedge fund as the establishment. I get that because I, I started out of a two-bedroom apartment. I did it, I, and I was loving to challenge the establishment. And then you play and you learn. So they're playing and they're learning. And uh, so I relate very much to it. Do you think the Redditors had a point in that they were saying big hedge funds rig, and I'm using rigging inverted commas here, but rig the market with their power and their influence a lot of the time? I get, you know, we are the largest hedge fund and I can tell you we we can't rig the market and we don't rig the market. You know, it goes back to what is going on behind the curtain. And when you use the term hedge funds, I think that people imagine a lot of things that are going on behind the markets, but it's a very regulated market. And if you look to history, and I know you like to take a broad sweep, and this is something you're standing back and doing, particularly now and looking forwards, where do you find examples that align with the presence? Is there a year in your mind that 2020, 2021 compares to? Oh, yes. There are three major things, I think, that are going on. And the last time they went on was in the 1930 to 45 period. And those three things, besides the pandemic, but those three things are the hitting of zero interest rates and the creation of enormous amounts of debt that is being monetized by the central bank has big implications for markets and our living standards and so on. The second is um, very large uh, gaps in wealth, income, um, and politics which is having very big implications, very much like President Biden equals President Roosevelt in the policies and so on, because you have a movement to redistribute the wealth and rectify some of those imbalances. And the third big thing is the rise of a great power to challenge an an existing great power, the rise of China to challenge the United States in changing the world order. Now, those three factors, you go back to the 1930 to 45 period, and you can find those same factors at work. This dynamic that is happening now, when you have not enough money to spend and you have a large wealth gap and a large political and values gap, is causing uh, conflict, internal conflict, and the need to produce a lot of money and credit and a lot of spending. And that's what's happening now. 
I'm going to come uh, straight back to Joe Biden's plans in, in just a moment. But as, as you, you've uh, just caught my attention with you saying, well, there's not a lot of money or not enough money. The economic boom appears to have begun, but can it last? What, what's, what's your prognosis on America's near economic future? Yeah, let me clarify, first of all, what I mean about m- money. There's real money. Is your income greater than your expenditures and, in real money? And what's always happened is when the income is not as great as the expenditures, then there's the creation of debt and printing of money. And so I'm saying that there's not enough real money. We're running large deficits that are being funded by that way. As far as what's happening, I think for the, about the wealth gap and so on, there needs to be those kinds of adjustments. It has to do with how capitalism needs to be reformed, in my opinion. Let's look at some concrete reforms. President Biden gave his first address to Congress at the end of April, and he announced a swathe of new higher tax rates. And he said it was time for corporate America and the top 1% to pay their fair share. Well, do you agree with that? And would you be happy to pay more tax? Yes, yes. It is a reality that for certain reasons that don't have to do with any bad guys doing bad things, but more having to do with things like technology replacing people or globalization taking jobs and moving them outside the country, that the wealth gap becomes large and it becomes very unfair. The idea of equal opportunity or what I called the American dream, which I was able to live, that has largely diminished. The structural reasons have to be fixed. Now, yes, you you should pay more t- taxes. I um, live in Connecticut and my my wife works philanthropically for to help what are called disengaged and disconnected high school students in Connecticut. Connecticut is usually number one, two, or three in terms of income. In that state of Connecticut, 22% of the population of high school children is either disengaged or disconnected. Disengaged means that they have absentee rates of greater than 25% and are failing classes. And disconnected means they don't know where they are because they've dropped out of school. Those are going to be useless lives. And the budgets that they are operating with small budgets. So the disparity in terms of opportunities is bad. And that's not just problems socially. That's a problem uh, for productivity because those people who don't have those kinds of opportunities, then, you know, they go on the streets and it's greater crime rates and so on. So this needs to be rectified. Now, the question is, uh, you, you have to be productive too. So you just can't give money. But some of the good things about the Biden plan are investing in education, investing in early childhood development, and a number of those other things. There are many, many things. Connectivity, for example. Children in school, because of poverty, um, did not have computers or connectivity. Uh, we personally had to buy 60,000 computers to give it to kids who didn't have it. The society cannot have that. If you don't have a computer and connectivity now, it's like having not having a telephone 50 years ago. So these things have to be dealt with. 
I think there's often a general welcoming of, of the idea, as you talk about, of a, a redistribution, resharing of opportunity, certainly uh, around not only in America, but particularly perhaps in America as, as home to the American dream that you, that you laid out earlier. When you start to get into the details, the weeds of how that's going to happen, well, things obviously get a bit more fraught. And something like the carried interest loophole, which the Biden administration said is going to close, is being called Wall Street's favourite tax break. And broadly speaking, you can put me right here. I think it means investment managers pay a favourable CGT, a capital gains rate, uh, over income tax on the profits of their deals. Now, some people say this is uncompetitive and will drive uh, business out of the country. People will, will go abroad in order to find similar loopholes. Are they right? What it is, is uh, somebody uh, gets a share of the profit. And so when they get a share, they have an ownership interest, and then it's taxed as a capital gain rather than a uh, ordinary income. And and frankly, you know, I, I'll let the tax people work out those types of things. But yes, it's true that in the world today, there's a lot of tax shopping. You know, in other words, going around from one country to another, trying to find whatever the best tax deals are. We're, you know, we're very global nowadays. And so it's easier to do that. I think that that will always be the situation that taxes as it's produced will lead to people trying to avoid those taxes by pursuing ways uh, mostly that are legal. You know, it's a kind of a cat and mouse game that uh, has gone on forever. And the main thing that I look at for all of that is, is it productive for the broad population? Then I think that's a good move. You were quite outspoken, I think, uh I happened to catch you, I think, on, on television around the time of the election in America and certainly around the events uh, at the Capitol in in January. And that sense, perhaps, that the, at the end of the, the Trump era, that this was the, if you like, the ugly face of, of capitalism. Do you think that was a, a fair response? I think it's a reflection of the giant gaps between, to some extent, capitalists and socialists, but to some extent between very conservative and, and very liberal and the also semi out of control nature of the population in many cases, the willingness to fight because they believe that their causes are more important than the system. And, you know, whenever you have a society in which the causes that the people are behind are more important than the system, the system is in jeopardy. And I think we have that kind of uh, an environment right now. There's, there's, there's more of a desi- desire to fight for what people want than to operate in a bipartisan way to try to find out what's good for the whole. And that that was manifest then, and I think it concerns me, because I think it's going to increase. I think you're seeing the movement to different states, not just because of tax reasons, but because of ideological reasons. And the, the conservatives and the red states, let's say, are more red than they've ever been. And the, the blue states are more blue than they've ever been, more liberal and so on. So that clash, I don't think is going to be easily reconciled. And if you look at history, there is a, a tendency for that polarity not only to increase, but for people in the middle who are trying to bring the country together, moderates are attacked. 
for being moderate. You have to increasingly pick a side and fight for that side. And that's a dangerous path. And that's what we saw in Washington. I think that's a really interesting answer to to a lot of what we've been looking at, not just in the last uh, heated period, but things that have been building up and the forces across Western societies. But has it changed the way you think Politically, have your own politics changed as a result of what you've experienced, what you've seen in the markets and what you're seeing in America? No. And, and let me tell you why. Like, I have not supported any political. I'm, I'm apolitical. I want to be uh, bipartisan. I want the country to be together. The, the only candidate that I've supported ever to some extent was John McCain because he was bipartisan and he was a man of good character. No, to me, I think the country, the polarity and the way there's the fighting was was bad before and it's getting worse now. So, you know, that's been a, a strong view of mine. So I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I practically don't care whether it's left or right, as long as it's together and as long as it's productive. You don't only work in America. Of course, you visit and work in China a lot over the last 30 years, which must have been fascinating to see that uh, evolution of that country. You've said it could emerge as a rival to London or New York as a financial hub. I suppose that had to an extent already happened with Hong Kong, but the ramping up of tensions there uh, goes to show the inherent instability, I suppose, of of looking to the Chinese model as a place that can become a competitor to the established financial hubs of the West? I honestly don't see it that way. As I say, I've been going to China since 1984. China is now the largest trading country in the world. It is not billed. It doesn't lend much in its local currency for various reasons. We have an issue now with the dollar and having to do with the printing of a lot of dollars and some of the problems that we're talking about in the United States. In, in China, uh, since I went there, started going there in 84, per capita incomes increased by 22 times. Life expectancy has gone increased by 10 years. Poverty rate has gone from 88% to less than 1%. Great accomplishments. It's not a democracy. It's a top-down autocracy, and, um, you know, so stay out of politics. But the way that they have opened up, let's call it capitalism or a socialist market economy, the way they've opened that up to entrepreneurship and the creation of attractive businesses and attractive markets, you're seeing capital go into that place, a lot of capital. So would you be placing more of your bets, more of your portfolio in China? It depends when you say more. Uh, we have significant amounts there. But I think the issue right now is that the world is overweighted in dollar assets and dollar denominated assets, just like if we go back to the British pound and what was happening there because of historical reasons as the world's reserve currency, people save in it and so on. And because people save in it so much, that gives the country the exorbitant privilege of being able to get more in debt and borrow that money. And that's an issue. And so what is happening is as their markets are opening up and becoming more attractive and the world is overweighted in dollar assets and the the debts that they, they have to sell those, those become bonds and they have to sell those debts to the rest of the world. You're seeing a shift 
the desire to diversify. Right now, um, the diversification, a lot of portfolios are in what we might call the old world countries. It's like the G7. The G3 is is almost like the G7 uh, in terms of the reserve currencies. And so the, the need to just diversify, to have some chips on China. Is that because you're betting against the dollar fundamentally? Because uh, not long ago, everyone was talking about the dollarization of, of, of the world. And now there seems to be a much more nervousness about the dollar. I'm like a mechanic, you know. I look at the uh, just. I'm a practical guy who looks at supply, demand, and what happens in terms of who does what, why, and how does that affect the capital flows. And all I'm saying is that China has been and continues to be, for for good reason, a place in which it's growing strongly and has created attractive markets that are opening up. And and I I think when you start to think about it, since 1978, China should be commended if you're looking at the results that it's produced and the way it's operated in terms of a market economy. When I first went there, there was still communism. You couldn't, there wasn't restaurants that were privately owned. And, you know, when I would go there, I would bring $10 calculators and I give it away and they thought they were miracle devices. And it was a a totally different place. Now they're AI and quantum computing and the energy of that is is a different place. But the human rights record at the moment is particularly egregious and terrible. And it just almost sounds like, as you said earlier, don't get involved with the politics, but capital flows, investment, it is all involved with it's all involved with the system and it's all involved in some ways that is that suits the chinese leadership because it is also a facade that that they can show to the world of success do you not worry that it also emboldens what is in the end a rather ruthless and in some ways rather terrible regime i don't know what you mean about a facade of success when i look at the actual success. I've been there. I, you know, I, I know the buildings. They're not facades. I know the businesses that are going on. That's not a facade. That's a reality. But in any case, there's different approaches to whether one, how one feels about a particular ideology, whether it's uh, autocracy or democracy. You know, democracy is having a lot of challenges too. And at the end of the day, it's simply an internal for the most competition. Do we, in our systems, produce better educated, more civil, smarter people who become more productive, work well together to produce prosperity or not? And that's that's the cycle through history. So just as long as we you know don't have a, a war and a conflict, it'll largely be that there'll be the evolution of that system. What's happening in China is no facade. It is very impressive. A couple of thoughts just as we come to our close. Your father was a jazz musician. I don't know if you inherited that love of jazz from him. I wondered if you played yourself and indeed whether there is, is there a jazz classic that fits the world of high finance? My dad was a jazz musician. I don't play. He wanted to teach me to play properly. He started me with the clarinet. He was a woodwind player. I started with the clarinet. I had to do scales. It wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for him. 
<laughs> to be teaching me. And now at this age, I really wish that I did play. I particularly would have loved to play the sax. And I like all kinds of music. I don't know of um, a particular piece. I think we'll ask our listeners. You're a cultured bunch. Cultured bunch out there. And they do like jazz and they do like uh, jazz and classical music. So there you go. A jazz classic, please, for the world of high finance. And we'll pass that on to Ray. Thank you. I can't, I can't wait. Thank you. Uh, last thought, you've said meditating is the key to your success. And what's so great about it? Uh, the, the kind of meditating lay person in me thinks, can you really switch off when you're running a business like yours? Oh, it's, it's a practice that's an, an exercise that allows you to transcend into your subconscious. Uh, the way it works is there's a sound, uh, it's called a mantra, that you repeat in your head. I'll give you an example, might be something like OM, and you repeat it. And when you do that, you can't be thinking thoughts and thinking OM at the same time. So you go to OM after a while, and then the OM disappears, and you go into your subconscious mind. Now, your subconscious mind is where creativity and intuition comes from, and it also gives one an equanimity, a calmness. That exercise of being able to go there, when one does it really well, one's not conscious and one's not unconscious, one's in the subconscious. That's where the creativity bubbles up and it gives an equanimity. And that equanimity and that uh, creativity and those intuitions, when they align with logic in that way, that's a very powerful combination. And I, I think I think it's powerful for everyone. And like in my business, just the ability to sit back and as there's all of this stuff happening and sometimes in a chaotic or could be nerve wracking way to be able to just look at it with that calmness and, and approach it. it gives me a little bit sense of like I see in the Chinese movies with these ninjas. Everything sort of slows down, helps to navigate that. So I really recommend meditation. I do transcendental meditation, whatever kind of meditation suits you. I, I think it's the most important gift I can give anyone. Great thought to end on. Ray Dalio, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Anne. And we'd love to know what you think. What is the jazz classic that best sums up the world of today's giddy hypercapitalism? Are you willing to give meditation a go, especially if you could net material as well as spiritual rewards? I'm interested too in whether you think that the Biden recipe for addressing economic disparities will work out in practice. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. Thanks to our listener, Dan Connolly, for sending in such positive feedback on our episode with Ben Rhodes. I say that not just to be nice to Dan, but because we really do read all your comments and appreciate them. I'm not averse to a five-star rating on Apple if you're in the mood either. Over on our website, The Economist's US team is asking why President Biden is looking to Europe for inspiration on his welfare plans. And of course, I would highly recommend subscribing to The Economist. I'm not hedging on that one for your best introductory offer. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>